Hello, Kaiju and Tokusatsu fans, and welcome to Kaiju Vision Radio, a podcast about the appreciation of Kaiju and Tokusatsu movies and discovering their historical and cultural value. I'm Brian Sturgill. For those of you who don't know me yet, I'm the creator and host of Kaiju Vision Radio, and I shoot the scenic videos featured on the show's YouTube channel. I received my Master's of Public Administration from the O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs at Indiana University Bloomington in 2005, concentrating in international affairs and comparative politics. Kaiju Vision has so many different goals and aspirations, but the main one is to shed light on the Japanese national spirit by examining what kaiju and tokusatsu movies say about Japan's history and culture. I share the G-Fest and G-Fan goal of international understanding through Godzilla. The website for the show is www.kaijuvision.com. The Shin Godzilla episode is fabulous if you like that movie. The Godzilla King of the Monsters episode is the most recent one, and I go really deep into that one. The anime trilogy episode is phenomenal, especially if you like them. I'm so happy to have zeroed in on Godzilla at the right place and the right time. I am an intense person, and I apply that intensity to the show. I say what's on my mind, and sometimes I don't know how it's going to go over, but I, I just go with my gut. I believe you have the first movie. You good? Okay. I'm Taylor Hensley. I'm a co-host of Giant Monster Messages. Uh, or me and my co-host look for messages in giant monster movies. He's not here. He's on his honeymoon. Uh, it's pretty selfish. So I came by myself. He was nice enough to let me come along. Uh, all my degrees have nothing to do with giant monsters. Uh, I'm a published author, but it has nothing to do with giant monsters. So that's me. So you're good to go? Uh, you maybe have been lied to. The panel tells you about Invasion and Godzilla movies. That's true. Uh, he's going to cover Japan and things. I'm going to cover the West, and then we're going to see. So you're getting more than Godzilla? Spoiler. Uh, I'm going to start this out like 60 years ago in the 1950s. Uh, the 50s has the highest reported number of UFO sightings. So it's no surprise. Uh, it's a booming time for alien invasion films. And where did Giant Monsters come into that? There's tons of those. If you guys have seen Giant Monster movies, they're there. Uh, the Crawling Eye, anybody? Yeah. Yes, thank you. Okay, that's not what I'm going to talk about. But <laughs> it happened in 1958. Uh, psychic, giant eyes, invade our planet and target human psychics. It's great. I love it. The Giant Claw, <laughs> another good one. Also not talking about it. It's a giant bird uh, with antimatter shield from a different galaxy that comes and lays its eggs. Also in Japan, which he talked about, there's like Mysterians happening, 1957, all this stuff. What I'm talking about is a little bit farther back, 1957, Kronos? Yes? One, two. That's awesome. Maybe. Okay. It means I can tell you the plot, and it's fine. Uh, spoilers. A guy gets possessed by an alien entity. He drops an army base and then takes over another guy. That guy's the head of the observatory. They see a planetoid coming towards them. Uh, they want to blow it up because that's what America did in 1957. Uh, the double agent tries to stop them. The planetoid doesn't get blown up and crashes in Mexico. And our non-alien double agent people from the observatory go there and eat some Mexican food. And I quote, they say, I have heard this Mexican food is pretty good, end quote. And I think that's the understatement of the century. Uh, surprise, that thing that crashes a giant monster and it rampages and eats all the energy. Can it be destroyed? Uh, whatever, I'm not spoiling that. 
You should go see it. It's black and white. Uh, the historical and cultural influences, that's what you're here for, the panel. Alien invasions. Uh, while they definitely were a thing in the pop culture, abductions were not so much. Uh, those were a few cases before, before 1957, but the idea of being abducted didn't really happen until Betty and Barney Hill in 1961. Um, also, supercomputers. Anybody watching a movie in the 50s, supercomputers are huge. But they really weren't invented yet. We had mainframes, which is those big panels that have little things you plug. I'm not that old, so I don't know, but like the telephone people. Anyway, supercomputers weren't in real life yet, but they were in fiction, uh, like the IBM 704, which came out in 54, but that was one of the mainframe supercomputers came out later. They were in fiction, like uh, Multivac and Isaac Asimov, the Mark V and Carl supercomputers by Arthur C. Clarke. This one has Susie, the Synchro Unifying Sinometric Integrating Equatorian. Does that make sense to anybody? No, uh, yeah. Th thank you, I tried. I'm glad I'm not covering Japanese stuff because my pronunciations of names would be worse than that. Uh, you've also got some actual historical stuff in this film. It's about resource management. A lot of these movies are. Kronos is a scout. He comes from a race of people that mismanage their own planetary resources. He's looking for more energy. Kronos will eat the energy and report back. It's, as I think all good sci-fi is, it's a dark mirror to humanity. If you don't use your resources right, then you could be a horrible person. This is what your possible future is. Uh, a little side note, another, a history after this, so, but before us, history of some type. In light of the energy crisis in the 1970s, Fox considered remaking it, but it was never greenlit, which I'm kind of sad, because there are more people to see in it. Anyway, watch Kronos. I think the next one, yes, what you're here to actually listen about, Godzilla for the next two movies. Thank okay. you. Okay, so Alien Invasions and Godzilla. I'll start with Invasion of Astro Monster from 1965. Akira Takarada's in it. Hope you all got to see him, get autographs, shake his hand. What a fantastic person. Though this film has one of the lowest screen times for any Godzilla movie, the human plot it makes up for it because it's really good. It's an extremely memorable film for kaiju fans too. You would think that everything has been said about this film already because there's so much attention that's paid to it. Other Godzilla films that have followed in its footsteps stylistically include Destroy All Monsters and Godzilla Final Wars. The alien invasion story in this though is so organically Japanese. And what I'm referring to here is the national psyche, the soul of the nation, the Japanese national spirit, as I say on the show. While this concept may seem abstract, nations absolutely do have a psyche. So let's unpack what's going on here. We've seen this movie a million times, but you might not have heard it described quite this way. The zillions make first contact with human explorers. They falsely act like they're victims of Ghidorah, making themselves look weak when in fact they are strong. They say they'll give Earth the cure for cancer if they agree to let the zillions use Godzilla and Rodan to get rid of Ghidorah. But Godzilla and Rodan are the only defense Earth has against Ghidorah. So the proposal is to give up their defense in exchange for this miracle cure. That kind of reminds me of the security treaty after the war when Japan was demilitarized. In the government meeting that occurs regarding this proposal, 
the women's groups, scientists and others, are eager to make this transaction, even though they don't even know all that much about what's going on. They just spring for it. In the montage, after the invasion is announced, there's a line about how some of the population of Earth wants to fight to the bitter end, but others want to peacefully surrender. Did anybody else find that weird? It's a scene where we see the newspaper headlines and some old pictures and footage from the war. And that's weird, right? There aren't many American movies that there's a significant portion of people who want to surrender right off the bat. And that's just not the MO. That gives us a clue, though, because the Japanese people have experienced surrender before. America has not on that scale. After Emperor Showa, Hirohito, recorded his surrender message, a rebellion occurred where a bunch of generals and other officials in the military tried to stop the surrender. They tried to overthrow the emperor and, they, and fight to the bitter end. They failed and the surrender went through. The US had one message about all of this and it was surrender or be destroyed. That's what we've been saying them for a long time. And that's what just one line of that movie means. That's so amazing what emotions are conveyed because the Japanese viewers, they picked up on that. They probably knew what it was, and that is just as artful as some of the most evocative images in the original Godzilla movie. There's another thing, though. The black ships are also a big historical influence on this story. The black ships, or the kurofune, as the Japanese referred to them, is a term that was originally used to describe the color of Portuguese trading vessels that made contact with Japan for the first time in 1543 which was first contact. The term became a generic term used to describe foreign vessels. From 1639 to 1853, Japan under the Tokugawa shogunate underwent a more than 200 year period of isolation from the West. After a rebellion, which was fomented by Christian missionaries and other outsiders. The term black ships was also used to describe American naval vessels, which released black smoke from their engines. So that was the connection. These included the vessels commanded by Commodore Matthew Perry. In 1853, he took four ships into Tokyo Bay as well. And Tokyo was referred to as Edo at the time. And he demanded that Japan open itself to trade with the West. If not, he would attack Japan with those ships. Surrender or be destroyed. It's possible that the cure for cancer and invasion of Astro Monster is like the offer of trade by Western outsiders. Like the cure for cancer, trade is something that some Japanese wanted, but it ends up being an unfair arrangement. Like in the movie, when our hero characters play the infamous record. And, every, and it's announced to everybody. And it's like the unfair trade agreements after Japan acquiesced to Commodore Perry. If Japan had kept this isolationist stance all the time, they could have been invaded by another country by the time 1870 came around with all the new military technology that was being developed at that time. 1853, that isn't very long ago though, especially if you're looking at Japanese history. Both of these events, Commodore Perry's expedition and the Great Pacific War were the two most earth shattering events that occurred in Japanese history and they affected Japan's national psyche more than any other two events, probably since 1500. The war probably even before that. So 1543, first contact. 1853, 
Japan acquiesces to Commodore Perry. 1945, Japan surrenders to the United States. Both of these events were due to the threat of force. The aliens are a symbol for Westerners and really other outsiders who take aggressive actions if they don't get their way or who use deceptive tactics in order to take their advantage. When someone says the movie didn't need the deception, they could have just invaded without the whole asking thing and lying and all that stuff. Well, the deception's a huge part of that story. You can't delete that. That's where a lot of the meaning of this story comes from, and that's where the significance comes from, especially when Japanese people are looking at this. So when you're a small country like this, and you're surrounded by all these major powers like China and Russia, and all these hostile failed states like North Korea, living in Japan on a bunch of islands makes you feel really out in the open. I personally can't imagine a scenario like the Perry Expedition in America where another nation comes up on you like this and makes demands or we're going to attack you. So if you're Japanese and you watch this movie, this story is evoking all kinds of things, evokes all kinds of feelings. Americans might not necessarily have easily seen this when it came out in 1970. Maybe some of them did. The ending is about everyone banding together to exploit the aliens' weaknesses, which ends up being a simple sound. It's like the aliens' brown note. Technology and hard work save the day. Is this film anti-American, though? Well, I doubt it. It's no more anti-American than the original Godzilla in 1954. The relationship between Glenn and Namikawa, too, that's not anti-American at all. And as well as Toho, when they made this movie, they were cooperating with an American studio, UPA, United Productions of America, and that's the Saperstein connection, in the making of this movie. So that, that's another huge indication that this isn't meant to be anti-American at all. But it does a truly fascinating job at capturing the zeitgeist of post-war Japan. But for an Ishiro Honda film, this is a rather militaristic, nationalistic movie. But here's the big idea for this movie. Instead of Japan, it's all of Earth. And instead of untrustworthy outsiders, it's aliens. Insert alien, ancient aliens meme. Okay, I got 72 next. Nice. That's, you do? Uh, I think you're, yeah, you're next. Okay. I get to keep being quiet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sounds good. It's hard to do. So thank you for your patience. All right. Godzilla versus Gigan, 1972. <laughs> Has everyone seen... Yeah, yeah, you've seen. Oh, yeah. I grew up with this movie. I saw it on the Fox affiliate on television, and we got it onto a VHS. We could keep it and rewatch it. But back then, I didn't know how perfect the symbolism of this story really was. It's perhaps my favorite story of any Godzilla movie just because of the symbolism and how everything connects so perfectly. In the episode on this movie, I talked about globalization. I took a class on globalization in college, and that was one of the most difficult courses to plan if you're a professor because of how wide the discussions can get because globalization affects so many things and distorts so many things. The biggest wave of globalization in world history started happening in the 1950s, post-war, and went into full swing in the 1960s. By the late 1960s, corporations had turned into some of the big beasts that we see today. For instance, Sony is one of the biggest Japanese example of a powerful corporation that follows this exact timeline. But this story isn't about Japanese corporations. Since Sekizawa and Kimura both contributed to the writing of this movie, I was intrigued by that. But the globalization part of this story is very Kimura. 
Globalization was at the heart of Kimura's best work, or at least in his opinion, his best work, Matango, from 1963. The movie plugs into the Japanese zeitgeist of the early 1970s all too well. First, I'll mention Disney. Okay, so World Children's Land is the name of this theme park the aliens have started up and are basing their world takeover operations. While Disneyland was built in 1955, I noticed how Walt Disney World was built in 1971, just one year before this movie was released. I'm sure even back then there was speculation about where Disney was going to go next, where they're going to build the next theme park. Tokyo Disneyland would go on to be built in 1983. Disney is a fantastic example of a giant American corporation that has global influence. I believe that World's Children, World Children's Land has to be a symbol for Disney, guys. Also in 1971, though, a year before this movie was made and released, the first ever McDonald's franchise opened in Tokyo. This was a big deal. What better symbol of multinational corporations would there be than McDonald's? It's iconic. In Japanese society, though, the first McDonald's was a huge deal. McDonald's represented a moment where the Japanese thought about their society and reflected. McDonald's was viewed in the media as an invader, even though the guy that owned the franchise was totally Japanese. That's because McDonald's is based in the U.S., not Japan. So the tentacles of this multinational corporation had finally reached Japan, and there was nothing anyone could do about it. Multinationals can headquarter themselves anywhere. And because McDonald's is an American corporation, there's only so much power that the Japanese government can have over them. So that brings us to the cockroaches, which this movie is derided for by people who don't understand how great the symbolism is. And I think that part of the symbolism is also Kimura. And because he takes the, the, the mushrooms in Matango, those are taken so literally. And especially the ending where he shows that he himself has been affected Spoiler. by Spoiler. Yeah. <laughs> Multinational corporations are a little bit like cockroaches. There are a lot of them. They're very hard to kill. And they invade everything if they have the chance. Pretty smart symbolism, actually. The icing on the cake is that the humans in this movie are a group of hippies. Actually, some of the most charismatic characters in any Godzilla movie, really. And Fukuda knew how to work with young people, too. That was so cool. They conduct an investigation into World Children's Land. There's an investigation montage, even, with music. And they get together after they investigate. And they figure out that World's Children, World Children's Land is secretive. They're headquartered in Switzerland which has a big reputation for having banks that will take money and not asking where it came from or telling anybody else where it came from. There's a huge indication that there's something sinister going on with these two guys in charge of the park, Kubota and Fumio. At the beginning of the movie, Gengo talks with Kubota. He says, and if you listen to that Japanese dialogue that comes out of Kubota, you notice that he speaks the language of globalization. He uses in his little talk there, when they're, when they're around that model, that scale model, if you listen to that, he uses an astonishingly high number of English words in his sentences. Very good. You know, like all kinds of little things, just peppered all throughout. That's unusual, but that is the way he should be talking. He's a corporatist cockroach and stuff, right? So what's the concern in Japanese society about globalization anyway? The same as in Matango. They're concerned about the loss of individuality, the loss of Japan's distinctiveness, and the erosion of the Japanese-ness of their homeland. And that's what globalization does. It can alienate localities and make people feel like their country is losing its distinctive identity. 
This concerns man these concerns manifest themselves into an overall nationalist pushback. I could see the rising amount of nationalism in America before the last election occurred. I'm from Indiana, after all, which is a very high number of manufacturing jobs, very blue-collar place. Free trade agreements are contentious and controversial. Moving factories to other countries is a concern because you're losing the jobs. Globalization causes feelings of the loss of community, disconnectedness. As a result, localization is an opposing line of thought to globalization. Not everyone benefits from globalization either. Corporations get a lot of money by moving manufacturing to all of the kinds of and all of the kinds of production offshore because labor is cheaper, environmental regulations aren't as strict, etc. These corporations aren't accountable to anyone for making these kinds of moves. They can do what they want. They can also headquarter themselves in countries that are tax, low corporate tax havens so that they can build there. Some countries like China, they have a huge workforce and they can use economies of scale to their advantage. But those who don't benefit from globalization don't have much of an incentive to want it to continue. There's also the environmental damages that big corporations can cause. The reason why the cockroaches had to come to Earth in the first place was because their home planet had been so polluted and degraded that they could no longer stay there. So they're parasites. They're continuing, they're coming to a new place that they can use up the resources there. They're just moving on to the next one. And this is symbolic of how multinational corporations are viewed as parasites. Another aspect that I also think was probably Kimura was the talk in the movie about peace. Now, remember Super Mario World, how Mario keeps giving the peace sign at the end of everything over and over? It was vogue back then in the early 90s, which was when globalization entered a new phase of expansion. It's like a brand, though. It's a corporate kind of peace. And if you remember this movie, our two corporate cockroaches, they love talking about peace. And our human characters are really wary about this. They don't understand it, and they wonder what kind of peace these guys are actually talking about. Gengo says, monsters and peace. I don't get it. It's not the kind of peace that student movements around the world in the late 1960s and early 70s were talking about either. The younger ages of the human protagonists and their hippie background implies that they would definitely have been part of the student slash peace movements back then. It's the kind of peace where multinationals and, and the cockroaches have control, total control. The alien's goal is to destroy human civilization and then inhabit Earth unchallenged. They create their own Godzilla in the theme park, but it's not the real Godzilla. It's actually a weapon. It's a weaponized Godzilla. It's also a fake Godzilla. It's simplistic. It's a soulless product. If Kazuki Omori from the Heisei era had rewritten this type of story, he would have removed any of this other symbolism and just had some big Mickey Mouse knockoff with laser beams shooting out of its eyes and blowing up cars. But the symbolism in this movie is so great, though. When I watched this movie as a kid, I had absolutely no idea what was going on. So as a kid, I loved it because of, there's quite a bit of monster action in it, a lot of destruction, and there's Ghidorah in it. And the harrowing moment where Godzilla looks like he's actually going to get killed, which that doesn't happen in Godzilla movies very much. It's so gripping and intense. The first time I watched it, I couldn't believe it. But now, as an adult, I can appreciate this movie on such an adult level, too. And as an adult, it's so amazing. I, I, it really speaks to the national psyche of the Japanese at that very time, at that very moment, which is exactly what the first Godzilla from 1954 did so well. It addressed the anxieties and the concerns of the Japanese people as a whole. So if you ever revisit Super Mario World and you want to get your legacy gaming on, 
Then think about this when you see the peace sign all the time. It's corporate Nintendo peace. There are tons of Japanese corporations that use globalization to their advantage, though. Japan, Inc. And is this movie anti-American, though, because it expresses these concerns about globalization? No, it's about outsiders, it's about corporations, but I don't detect any malicious intent with this. Anyone in the world can express their reservations about globalism. I mean globalization. Many do. So here's the big idea. Godzilla vs. Gigan expressed the sentiments that Japanese had at the time it was released, showing their uneasiness with the economic and societal effects caused by globalization. Back to you. I think you guys, he likes that movie? Yes? It's a good one. Um, I'm taking you back to the West. Uh, again, giant monsters and invading. Um, hoping this one is one that you didn't think you'd come to hear about. Star Trek, the motion picture. Okay, sweet. Uh, you guys have seen Star Trek, the motion picture, at least heard. Um, and while I'm on the topic, I will quote Spock and say, logic is the beginning of wisdom, not the end, from Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. So if anyone has messages or thoughts on messages or ideas or meanings from these films, and we don't cover them, think of yourself as possibly farther along the wisdom path. It also means that we're not wrong. So I'm going with that. Uh, you've seen it. Uh, I'll start it off. Got a minute and a half of black screen. I know it's supposed to be Starfield, but it's very soothing. It's very nice. It puts you in a contemplative mood, I think, which I'll come back to. And then we see a giant cloud being attacked by some Klingons. It destroys them in response. Uh, next, we see Spock going through the Kulinar. It's a Vulcan ritual to purge your emotion and completely embrace logic. Um, he's interrupted, or it is interrupted, by his feeling of consciousness from space. Next, we find Kirk, now an admiral, uh, taking back the Enterprise captaincy from someone that he recommended it to. And the rest of the movie is about them fighting the giant monster and stopping it from destroying Earth. Uh, side note, the cloud in the movie, well, first time, it's mentioned as 82 AU in diameter. That's, it, it covers past what used to be a planet, Pluto, it's still a planet, I don't, whatever. It's there. Uh, later on, it's changed to be, it's only one AU in size. An AU is the distance from the sun to the Earth. Doesn't matter, this thing is the giantest, so don't argue with me. Uh, cultural influences on this film, Star Wars. You've seen Star Wars, yes. Uh, not a lot of cheers for Star Wars. That's nice. <laughs> uh, more cheers for Star Trek. I appreciate that. It had been released two years before this in 77, and it was huge. I don't have to tell you how huge it is or was. Uh, this script, when writing at Roddenberry, he purposely um, left out battle scenes. He didn't want them to be any type of real battle scenes or conflict like in Star Wars. He wanted to separate this from Star Wars. He thought Star Wars had had an impact on society that he didn't like as much. He thought it was more fantasy than sci-fi. I'm not going to argue. Uh, he wanted this to go more deeper into this, uh, to have a more sophisticated and complex ideas, which brings me to my historical influences. Because uh, if you can't have conflict outside of yourself, you have to look into yourself and introspection is something that was happening big at the time, more meditation. It was coming into the West, maybe an invasion of some type. That's not even what I'm going at. You can go into that. Uh, but introspection and self-reflection is something Plato talked about 
why should we not calmly and patiently review our own thoughts and thoroughly examine and see what these appearances in us really are? whoop de doo That was introspection way back. It's gone forever. So we get introspection happening with Spock and the cloud. There's other ones too, but I've got like just a few minutes. Uh, what's happening with Spock? He's literally on a journey of pure logic when he detects something in the universe that he describes as having pure thought patterns of complete order. So he stops what he's doing so he can find this pure order. It's what he's doing. He alone ventures through this canal or portal that will say figuratively, I'm saying it separates two worlds, one of logic and one of emotion. And speaking of portal and worlds, I've got a movie I'm talking about later. Spoilers. Uh, he attempts to connect his mind with what he believes is pure order, but it's too much, and he's thrust back through. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, once he's back and conscious on the world of man or the motion, the first thing he does is laugh, which is not very logical. Then you've got what's going on inside the cloud. It kind of thrusts itself through the portal into the, ma the world of man. It makes this probe. He wants to investigate the Enterprise, and more appropriately, what this infestation of carbon-based life forms is about. And it just wants to eradicate them because these carbon-based life forms are not made of order. They're illogical. And only once both sides can come to an agreement, and understanding is a strong word, but they, they kind of understand each other a little bit, they, they can go through this portal that separates the two worlds and combine themselves into a final form. And I know that's weird, but it's the movie. Uh, I have some other things I'm gonna say, but I'm hoping you have something less weird or more weird, Brian, for your next one. It's weirder. Yes, <laughs> good. Godzilla versus King Ghidorah, yeah. It's my favorite Heisei film, actually. Gita is my favorite kaiju, too, by the way. And the symbolism going on in this story is a gold mine of information about the zeitgeist of Japan in 1990 1991. In 1990, the Japanese stock market crashed, and it was unthinkable. Though in retrospect, huge the, the huge asset and price bubble that built up was this vicious, self-reinforcing cycle. But I'm not going to go into the causes too much, but like stuff like too much liberalization of finances, allowing too many entities like businesses to trade currencies, central banking policies, discount rates too low, too much speculation on land prices, making money too easy to borrow, too many contributing factors. The result was the stock market bubble of the 1980s burst, and that resulted in the loss of household income, lower land values, chronic deflation of the yen, a big drop in consumption and spending, and chronically low economic growth. This was referred to as the lost decade. There's a line in the movie where one of the characters says, how could this happen? And it's in reference to the appearance of Ghidorah and Japan's imminent destruction towards the end. But really, the Japanese people as a whole were asking the same question to themselves at the time that the market was crashing because you know, how could this happen? I can't believe this, this is so crushing. The 1980s were a period of massive wealth, rising stock market. It looked as if the trend would just continue forever. But bubbles burst. There was also a feeling in Japan that there was some kind of conspiracy behind Japan's economic downfall. 
Some of the causes of the bubble included agreements that tried to help the trade imbalance because Japan exports way more. And the global financial system's complexity, you know, when something's so complex, conspiracy theories are easier to do. There was an idea that Japan was becoming too economically powerful. So maybe those other nations were mad at Japan Inc. and wanted to cut them down to size. And that leads us to the Fraturians. Are they aliens? They're close enough. And here's why. First, they're foreigners. They're outsiders, just like an invasion of Astro Monster. Or in one character's case, the Japanese woman who collaborates with foreigners. They have their own ship that behaves incredibly like a UFO, flies around, spins around, looks like a big Japanese Christmas ornament. It has time travel capability. They have an Android. They got a shuttlecraft. They got a supercomputer. They got hologram projections. They're from so far in the future they have such a technological advantage, they may as well be aliens. This movie takes place after, this movie takes after Invasion of Astro Monster stylistically, too. They're actually time terrorists, and they're with this thing called the Earth Union. Their stated goal is to destroy Japan, take Japan down to size, cut them off at the knees, because in the future, Japan gets so powerful that they're buying up entire nations in South Africa and, and, uh, and uh, South, South America and Africa. It's interesting that this power is all economic in nature and not military at all. It's clear that the economic power of Japan, which was on everybody's minds when this movie was being made and released, is the method that Japan uses to take over large parts of the world. The whole world has to give in in this alternate future. The whole world has to give in to Japan's dominance. Of these two white guys, one of them looks like Al Gore, and the other one looks uh, like Russian. <laughs> There's a Japanese collaborator who works against her own nation, and that adds another little level of intrigue, particularly for the Japanese people watching it. The countries that seem to want to take Japan down to size, though, are Westerners and other countries that would be Japan's economic competitors, the non-Japanese industrialized world. This is classic Japanese symbolism going on here mistrust of foreigners. And in this movie, the foreigners are a stand-in for aliens. It's like Kazuki Omori wanted to remake Invasion of Astro Monster, only have real foreigners in it instead of aliens representing foreigners. Then it wouldn't be a Kazuki Omori movie if it didn't imitate an American blockbuster, Back to the Future, with all this time travel. At, at least it wasn't the Indiana Jones one. That was cringe, wasn't it? Well... This movie messes around with the contemporary zeitgeist hardcore, though, doesn't it? It's daring in that respect. I don't consider it anti-American. Omori said he loved America. But the big idea here is, is that the Fraturians are thinly veiled representation of the anxiety going on in Japan at this time of economic insecurity, uncertainty, and vulnerability. Unlike Godzilla, just like in Godzilla 1954, the national psyche was going through a very traumatic period. Nice. Back to me, Wes. I'm going to end it, spoilers, uh, with some, uh, speaking of time travel, my film was made in 1999, but it actually takes place in 1957, The Iron Giant. Yes. Okay. Um, if you haven't seen it, it's really good. You should go see it. But except 1957, just like Kronos. If you guys don't know, I love Kronos. Uh, short summary, giant metal robot crashes in the ocean next to a city, just like Kronos. A boy later finds the giant monster at a power station, just like Kronos, and helps it from dying. Uh, this is not like Kronos. 
Uh, they befriend each other, uh, but then a government man shows up, and he's looking for to track down the monster. Uh, so I'm going to say it also has Harry Connick Jr. in the 90s when he was, like, going to be the biggest thing. It was great. Uh, cultural and historical influences on this film, the Red Scare, it's, that's what this film was about. It's a huge part. Um, it, it, those that don't know, it's, it's the promotion of widespread fear of potential rise of communism or anarchy in a country. Our country's version for the one this one's covering was McCarthyism, named after uh, Joseph McCarthy took place 47 to 60. Uh, for the history, during and after the Great Depression, the Communist Party in the United States had an increasing membership. And once the war was over in 47, uh, President Truman issued Executive Order 9835, which required all federal civil service employees to be screened for, quote, unquote, loyalty. Very vague. Um, that's great, right? The movement got its namesake from the previously mentioned uh, McCarthy because he showed up. I love this part. He showed up to a Republican woman's club in Wheeling, West Virginia. He brandished a piece of paper and claimed he had a list of 205 communists. No one knows if it had any names on it or what was on it. It was just a piece of paper that he spread a bunch of fear through. Uh, later on, uh, thanks to the Freedom of Information Act, histori historians actually say it should be called Hooverism after J. Edgar Hoover because he, implement mm -hmm. he, he implemented the Royal Loyalty Security Program. And what followed were years of illegal activity by the FBI and un unfounded claims uh, leading to backdoor firings, blacklistings, and just general life-ruining actions. I've heard people have – it was just all done out of fear. Uh, there's many more parts you should research yourself. But the main thing is the government was super worried. Russia and communism were everywhere, which leads us to the G-man in this film. He comes in. He's kind of bumbling. That, that's the best way to put it. He, one of his favorite quotes is, he's met uh, the kid that's befriended the robot. He doesn't know the robot's real. He thinks it is. It's, he's trying to get proof. And he, he screams at him at a diner, and he says, You think this metal man is fun? But who built it? The Russians, the Chinese, the Martians, the Canadians? I don't care. All I know is we didn't build it, and that's the reason enough to assume the worst and blow it to kingdom come. He, he stays so true to this McCarthyism just to get, he's so afraid and wrapped up in fear of things he doesn't know. He, just, he lies to get his way. He, he lies to tell the, the army that he called in that the Iron Giant killed a kid he, spoilers, he didn't. Um, he lies to the submarine to fire a missile to kill him, but I'm not going to spoil the rest. Uh, he becomes so afraid of the unknown that he lied to make the unknown as scary as his fear had made it. And and ties back to the Star Trek and the motion picture, it deals back with introspection and internal motivation. This giant monster recognizes that on the ice, outside he looks like a monster, uh, there's the kid has comic books that shows a giant robot is evil. Uh, he recognizes that, but he also recognizes that he can be good, like Superman in this film. Uh, he also recognizes that he reacts to when he sees a gun, he goes into full like battle mode. And, and the writer had said that's a part of it. He got the idea from what happens if a gun has a soul and doesn't want to be a gun. So it's more about just changing who you are through introspection and like i said the red scare which is about other people 
putting things on you that aren't even there. But anyway, so I'm talking about Star Trek, which I will always do. My next film, and the last one we're going to talk about, had Star Trek stuff in it from 2013. I know everyone here has seen it, most likely. Pacific Rim. Okay, it's the closest I get to get to having like a kaiju thing, so I had to include it. Uh, short story for those that don't know. Giant alien monsters uh, called kaiju are invading the Earth through a dimensional portal in the Pacific Ocean. We build giant robots called Jaegers to fight them. That's it. That's the story, <laughs> at least on the surface. Uh, there's also an idiot idea of building walls to keep kaiju out, though I'll go more into that later on. Uh, cultural and historical influences in this film. The writers, director, and everybody specifically tried not to copy Godzilla and other previous work. That um, is dedicated to Harryhausen and Ishura Honda, which I have personally have a problem with the dedication to Honda, but that's another thing completely. Uh, Del Toro specifically didn't want to copy previous work like Beast, Godzilla, Gamera, or War of the Gargantuas. Instead, he told them to draw from nature and older work, like the painting of the Colossus. It's a really great painting. It's, it's really good. Uh, he didn't want to be referential, but instead have to do something that could stand apart. And just like Star Trek, the motion picture, this one had, it had been influenced so much by culture that it was trying to do what culture was and just do something completely different. Uh, this one also talks about parallel and alternate dimensions. Uh, it, has, it was a very common narrative device in the last decades, last couple of decades. Basically, scientific progress and our understanding is the common people. Space, space is cool and space is great, but we can no longer get away with thinking, oh, there's Martians. We know there's not Martians. We've sent, sent probes there. So Mars is no longer that unknowable thing where we can just say, ah, there's people there that hate us and they want to fight us. So the new thing is, what don't we understand? Parallel and alternate dimensions. It's kind of replaced the outer space and alien part. So it's our new invasion front. Where are they from? Alternate dimension. How does it work? I, I don't know. It's like space. <laughs> uh, talking like, also, back to Star Trek, as I will always do, this one has mind melding. They call it drifting in this, and they actually at one point do mention mind meld. So you've got, as much as they didn't want to have this culturally influenced by other things, it's, it's my melding from Star Trek. Also, uh, some history on this. This was created out of loss, both from the story point. I'll, I'll get into it. Um, the original writer for this, he wanted the story to be about loss and dealing with that loss. It's through the film. You can watch it. It's, it's, it's right there. It's on the front. Uh, and Del Toro, the director, also came at this from loss because he, he agreed to do this on a Monday after crying over a whole weekend about not being able to do another project. So both of them came into this from a feeling of loss. And I also feel that the story has a much... There's the, there's the one about loss about some guy loses his brother and spoil, it's in the movie. The other one, I think, comes from the Great Depression and just the decades after that. This film yeah. depicts workforce similar to that that we'd seen in the Great Depression or afterward. <laughs> Workers waiting around factories for a handout on work. In one scene, the protagonist gets a job only because other workers had died. And after viewing this a couple of times, I, I started to question how dumb that wall idea is. I think on the surface, the wall idea is horrible and dumb. But if the economy had been ruined, 
it's going to be ruined. You've had monsters attacking you for a decade. Like, things are bad. So your economy is going to be ruined, just like the Great Depression happened to ours. So this wall construction, it could have been similar to the Eisenhower Public Works Program created in the 50s to build in-state interstate highway system and create jobs. There were other ones along the way, but it's something actually just for putting this panel together, I realized maybe the wall idea isn't the worst. I mean, it is in the movie. But for storytelling purposes, I don't think it's the worst. And with that uh, final little sour note, that's all our movies. Uh, we do have some, uh, I'll do my little conclusions, wrap it up. He's going to do his, and then we're going to have them fight each other. Yeah, uh, for the Western uh, conclusion consensus, what I came with was three of my four movies, uh, one, two, and four, deal with mind control or direct mind communication. A lot of them have characters just trying to directly connect to each other in some way and understand each other. Uh, three, three out of four of mine, one, three, and four, deal with invaders wanting Earth resources. That's a common theme, not just with giant monster movies, but I think with just American movies in general, it, we love our oil and we want to fight for it and people get, it's resources is what we crave. But I, I think another one is four out of four of mine have giant robots. I didn't plan this when I picked these out, but it just kind of happened and I think it's obvious. Uh, beginning, the giant robots are the invaders with Kronos. He's a giant robot. The second one is a misunderstood invader because you've got the cloud if someone wants to argue it's not an alien, for people of Earth, it's an alien. You're being invaded. It was created by us, but it gone away. It was messed around with aliens and came back. It's not trying to invade, but just its mere presence destroys everything it touches. Uh, the third is a converted invader. Iron Giant was supposed to come and destroy us, much like Kronos, but because of our humanity and spirit or something, we converted it into saying, you don't have to be what you were made to be. You can be something better. And the fourth, we're just straight up, we made the giant robots, and they are now working for us to protect us against these invaders. Uh, so I've got common themes of mind control, introspection, resource management, and technology first against us, and now we use technology. What about you? Well, all the Japanese movies that I just mentioned in alien that have alien invasions in them that I mentioned, they express widely held concerns in Japanese society with outsiders. The Godzilla movies do this so well as far as expressing what Japan's feeling at a time when they feel that they're vulnerable. And movies like The Return of Godzilla, Shin Godzilla, they aren't alien invasions, but they tap in too, so much. They express nationalist sentiments too. And for instance, you know, what we have is here a defeat in a world war, an unprecedented wave of corporatist globalization, a tumultuous stock market crash. These events were life changing and heavily affected the Japanese national spirit. A lot of these movies in Godzilla, especially the, the Japanese people who watch them, they pick it up. It's about what it really means to be Japanese. They're turning inward while looking at outsiders. As far as these movies, though, they do mention resources quite a bit. The first one, 
uh, Astro Monster that's about invading to just take over, and that probably had a lot to do with resources. Godzilla versus Gigan, they were coming to a different uh, environment because they'd ruined their old planet. Godzilla versus King Ghidorah, that was about destroying resources that someone else has so that they themselves can get ahead. I don't know if you saw this about Stephen Hawking, but he said that if aliens come to us, like if they contact us, he said we should be really careful because they probably want something and because and it's probably resources. That's so, what we would do. <laughs> yeah, it's, what, right? it's what we do. It's, right? it's, <laughs> it's what John Wayne would have done it. Uh-huh. Um, Both of these, though, the American movies and the Japanese movies, they express what is inherently going on organically in American society, whether it's about communism or you know, so many things. And that's looking inward about what it means to be American. Yeah. I also noticed yours have a, all about to do deception. Do they have a thing with people deceiving them? Yes. <laughs> I was going to say we could do questions, but we only have like five minutes. Mm. Wow. Uh, people come up to us with questions because I think there's people that got to come in after us. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I'm sorry, I didn't want to cut that off, but mm -hmm. uh, yeah, like if you have any questions, please approach me. I don't care when or where. Mm -hmm. um, Absolutely. But I think we need to shut it down because we got five minutes till the next people, and I don't want to be mean. Yeah. All right. Thank you guys. Thank you.